Water, water everywhere, but not a drop to drink. The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, Samuel Taylor Coleridge. That, friends, reminds me a lot of my evening last night, trying to fall asleep. The family was all tuckered out. They were doing fine, but I was restless. I had Hulu, Netflix, Amazon Prime, YouTube, Disney, CBS Plus. The only thing I didn't have was HBO. But I couldn't find a dang thing to watch. What was worse, it started to make me feel a little uncomfortable going through the possibilities. Everything I saw was either too shallow or too scary, too depressing, too naive, too mindless. I tried maybe watching the you know, log cabin shows where the couple goes and tries to find a log cabin. And I thought, this is so much a waste of time given our current situation. With the, with the virus and being locked at home, I realized that this problem that I had actually helped me to answer a question that I'm going to address with Stacy on this show. And it's a question from one of my students in history. And she is going to ask us about this problem she experienced where she had a hard time getting excited about history, even though she had before. I think these things are all tied together because as we are waking up, to certain realities, to certain global issues, some of the old questions, the old myths, the old entertainments, even the old historical primary sources are not as exciting or as helpful perhaps as we might have hoped. Or they maybe just rub us wrong. We're going to look at some recommendations for edifying things to watch and read. We're going to discuss how we're kind of coping with our family through these times, and also how we can help protect our noggins against folks who might want to use this opportunity to maybe mislead us or to reinforce unhealthy ways of thinking and relating. we got a lot going on. I'm glad you're with us. Stick around. Let's go. Well, baby, how we doing? <laughs> um, on a whole, I, I mean, I think we're we're doing pretty well. So we're 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 blessed. We are definitely sense. we definitely are blessed. Um, we are in a situation where we have you know older children, so they're a little bit more self sufficient. They're legal adults. <laughs> yeah, technically, and you know our youngest is a senior in high school, already eighteen. So, you know that's the thing. Um, and I. It's interesting because as I hear from various friends or even on social media and stuff, people are definitely in very different spots in life. And so you look at some that are homeschooling, say, for the first time, trying to help their kids through elementary school or, you know, worse, middle school. (laughs) Like Honestly, like if Aiden had a question for his calculus assignment i could not help him (laughs) i have i have long ago failed to care about helping him with that he's got to help me out right exactly with the mathematics so we can we are not helpful whatsoever uh in you know at least some of the sciences and maths and things (laughs) you know when it comes to philosophy or you know religion questions or whatever (laughs) um you know whatever some of the history stuff of course Anyway, but my 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 point is is that uh, there's been a whole even in our situation where you know we have had things you know relatively 
you know, like smooth and, and, and certain things. I still had, you know, a time, like a, a day that I just had sadness and I didn't know, yep. you know, exactly why. It can be you tough. Know? Sometimes you worry, oh no, <laughs> is this going to... Right. And then, yeah. you know, on, and another real thing for us is that, you know, we have our, our daughter-in-law who works at a grocery store. Yeah. And so basically we're going probably to get exposed through her. We don't know when. Mm-hmm. Um. We don't, you know, and so we're always wondering, you know, you hear a cough or, (laughs) you know, or or all of a sudden, you know, we're feeling super fatigued and we're wondering, like, is this, is this the virus? Is it coming, you know, is it coming into our house right now? And for that, we've also definitely self-quarantined out, you know, knowing that we were having a, you know, could have a potential exposure through her to not affect other people. But it's always that, you know, we do have somebody going out there all the time. Mm Mm-hmm. And interacting with people. And so we're wondering, you know, when is yeah, it? When's it going to come our way? Going to come our way. Has it already? I mean, yeah. we fought off what we thought were some symptoms that might, you know, might resonate with the virus. With our folk remedies of tonic water and seven <laughs> uh, mushrooms in our coffee. Seven mushrooms. There's uh, like a, a sacred powder yeah. <laughs> mushroom thing. Um, the cordyceps. The rishi. Some, some zinc. Uh, what do we know? <laughs> who knows? You know, one of those things where, you know, but my point is, is that, you know, it's it's uncertain times. Mm-hmm. And then we're here on a, in another direction, which some of us may not even really, you know, be that much aware of is that our, our kids are telling us that some of their friends or people that they know or friends of friends kind of thing, they're struggling being at home now, you know, with their families yeah. on this lockdown. They're either high schoolers or college students that are used to, especially the college students that have been able to have a certain amount of independence and then all of a sudden come home and back to mom and dad's, you know, rules and stuff. And they're still doing their, their studies in the, the midst of all of it, but they don't have the support or the, you know, sort of a, a time to hang out with their friends and things to just sort of recalibrate. Right. Yeah. They, so they're just sitting at home and that's another level of where they can't feel like they want are living the life that they want to. You know, they've got to study the way their family expects them to study. They have to, (laughs) you know, do, I don't know. There's so many different. Watch the movies they're watching in the living room. I don't know. I mean, you know, the number of students I have that had come from kind of very oppressive, very restrictive families, and they went off to college in their freshman or sophomore year, and they they were adults. They experienced this liberation and, and autonomy, and now... They are stuck back in like this time warp back to a time when they were under their parents' yeah. thumb uh, or thumbs, and and that could be good, that could be bad, depending on you know your folks. But but I can see for a lot of them that's difficult. It's just hard. It's a hard adjustment. It's probably hard for the parents that are going through it too. You know, all of a sudden, how do I parent my adult? child <laughs> mm-hmm. you know where, where, what is my role in all of this what is our relationship and, now yeah and what is the relationship and a lot of couples even struggling because you know sometimes we fail to deal with our relationship issues by just filling up our time with busy things right those busy things have gone now we've got to face them so for those of you struggling with relationships and families and not being able to leave you know get into that special place get into that contemplative place Get yourself some some routines that help you to keep your sanity. Get yourself some creative outlets. But we're but we're feeling for you. Yeah, we, yeah. And you know, one of, you know one of the things from 
some of my training even as being a death doula and and just some of these things I've been looking into in in life with even like yoga instructions but people definitely suffer when they feel like they are completely out of control Mm -hmm. um, with any decisions in their life. And so one little small little piece of advice, we won't dwell on this much longer, (laughs) but is that perhaps check in with your children. Is there, are there things or ways that you can give them control back over their life that, you know, whether that's setting their, their study schedule or things like that, but just figure out, can they be helpful in the, the meal planning or even, you know, plan a meal or something? I don't know what it is, but any little bits of where they feel like they can be back in control of, you know, in healthy ways of their own life, I would definitely encourage that because when you feel like you have no no control, no, you know, all you're doing is listening to the bidding of other people, it's easy to just get depressed, frustrated, upset, and just crawl into a hole and mm. you don't want to come out. Right. So whatever you can do to right. give people some agency. Yeah. Well, all of this really strangely came to us as a show topic from a question that a student asked me in class. I'm really excited. I'm, I'm moving in my own professional life um, more towards the history of ideas and the department of history. So that's a new thing that's coming up for next year. I'm going to be moving into the history and political thought department, which allows me to still deal with the history of ideas as they relate to religion, but I'm looking at it more in terms of the relationship between these themes and the state. So, for instance, the research I've been looking at over the last few years on this idea of Molech being a religion of cruel power is really the question of, you know, from from um, Constantine to Charlemagne to the present day, these questions of church and state and how political issues have transformed the nature of religions. That's kind of a a common theme for what I've been looking at. And so I'm really enjoying the historical aspect of it. And so I'm all getting excited about history because because I've got this renewed enthusiasm for my day-to-day life. I've kind of, you know, I like some change. I like mixing it up. And a student emailed me and was, you know, grateful for some of the online you know, talks that I was throwing out there and maybe could tell that I was enthusiastic, but she wasn't that enthusiastic. And mm-hmm. so she wrote this email that I think relates to this this problem that I had when I was having a hard time figuring out what to watch and finding that in this new era after the pandemic, a lot of things that I used to find interesting, I simply can't watch anymore. So would you read the email? Yeah. It says, do you have any advice for a person getting discouraged by history? Lately, I've noticed that I'm struggling to bring myself to to have even the slightest interest in the content we are covering in history because it doesn't feel relevant to all the chaos in the world right now. We haven't learned from history, and we're making the same mistakes, and it's kind of making me lose hope in humanity. It has absolutely nothing to do with your style of teaching, but I just can't bring myself to care about the writings of individuals who we have not listen to in years past. Every time I sit down to do the reading, I feel frustrated at myself because I can't and don't want to focus on the material. I want to be a better student and a per- and person, but it's so hard right now and I don't know what to do. I honestly, I'm honestly feeling really overwhelmed and I don't know how I'm going to get through this. By the grace of God, I know that everything seems dimmer than my usually optimistic perspective sees. Do you have any recommendations as to how I can apply myself better to class? 
to view history as the important teaching it is, to not give up. I'm sorry that this is such a heavy email, but I really appreciate your time and all of your help. Now, you know, part of this, of course, is just we've got to recognize that sometimes it's not our motivation or our interest in a discipline or our cognitive abilities, but all of these other things that are going on in our lives where we've been disrupted. Our routines have changed. Our diets are changing. Our exercise is changing, perhaps. And so in those contexts, we need to realize that there are a lot of ways in which our bodies are going to affect our minds. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the overwhelmed part, a lot of people are feeling that. Mm-hmm. And you and I kind of notice this too, when we have these times when we're doing sabbatical work, we've got all the time in the world and it feels like it's already four o'clock. How come I'm not you know, right. able to see that I was more productive? And part of that's just life. You know, when you, sometimes when you're busy and you're going to work, you squeeze in little bits and pieces throughout the day. Mm-hmm. You can sometimes be more productive when you're more busy, you know, when you're busier. Mm-hmm. But really, I think a lot of this does go to this issue of this lament or the, the flavorlessness of some texts. Bottom line, I think it's important during this time, establishing regular routines, right? So yeah. you're still waking up at a certain time. You're still going to bed at a certain time. You schedule in your study, your work, eating times and meal preparations and cleanup. You plan in your fun time, your time with you know, like hanging out with the family and, and when are you done doing things, right? Mm. Your your entertainment, <laughs> mm. if you will. Anyway, so it's really important that we still take showers. You still get dressed. You still, you know, like do certain things that will help make your day a little more normal. And, and otherwise, I mean, you can just see your hours, you know, slip away from you as you start to sleep in yeah <laughs> and then it's like oh it's five o'clock so i should be done working you know well that's fine if you you started earlier but you know if if you waited till noon to get started um anyway your time can slip away from you yeah and in the case of history you know there's a there's a simple aspect of this and that is if you think about history like your attic you know that classical maybe east coast attic you know in in California, we don't tend to use our attics and we don't have basements. I don't know what's up with that. But, <laughs> but imagine that old school, you know, you got the attic, you got a trunk, and you've got various sort of artifacts from your family history. Well, you might have gone up there and pulled down, you know, your grandma's wardrobe and had fun checking that out and thinking that that was fun, you know, the old timey hats and things. But maybe that's not exciting anymore. Maybe that doesn't have the same kind of meaning it had at a simpler time. Right. That doesn't mean that you give up on history. History is like that attic. And so maybe there are other things that we need to find in there, you know, like documents that that connect us to assets, mm-hmm. <laughs> stock holding. I mean, who knows what sorts of things are up there or even just reflecting on photo, uh, you know, books um, to to reconnect with, with family and our heritage or whatever. It, it doesn't it, – there's not a specific thing that – I think you need to go find in the attic, but there are going to be some things that maybe you'll put away for a time and other things that used to not be interesting now have more relevance. Right. Well, you know, one thing too, it's kind of interesting is I was talking with my parents earlier this week and my dad was able to do some research from a cemetery that was like it in his, where they, where he did most of his growing up and things and could start to see now the history of, both sides of his parents and, you know, all of the, the siblings that his dad had and, and things where, you know, like 
he his dad died before I was even alive and I don't and his mom died when he was 13 so there's a lot of things that he wasn't even aware of but by being able to go back and then look at these tombstones and the history and then to see how many siblings of his father had had passed away or maybe his parents parents but there was like in the 19 between 1916 and 1918 there were at least like it seemed like there were three there was the the death of a twin and one earlier and one after of like babies that weren't like living very long. And so it just shows you that there were times in history that were, it was kind of expected that a lot of times like, you know, babies didn't survive after, you know, more than a year and things. And often during times of epidemic. Yes. And this is, this is true. If you, if you, when we finally get out and, and around, one of the things I always found interesting when I would go to you know, Philadelphia grave sites or up in Central City in Colorado, that every once in a while you'd see a whole bunch of family members. And that's not new. And I always thought, man, I can't even fathom right. how that would have been. And especially at those times when younger people, like the Spanish flu, would, would typically hit people in the prime of their life or certain other diseases might hit children and not adults, right. you know, like uh, measles. And for me, I know personally, it just felt easy to kind of say, oh, those were rough times. But now we're better because <laughs> we're modern. Yeah, we yeah. now have, you know, medicine and more things in place right. and, and vaccines and all right. kinds of stuff or whatever. But it, we're not, we aren't able to just like skate away freely from some of these things, right? right. And And so pretending like... This is just something that has happened during certain times and it's not relevant to our day and age was something we could do when we had many years apart from having to deal with some of that. But now we forgot, we forget and we forgot to remember. So, you know, so that's the point. I mean, your dad's doing history. He wouldn't think of it as historical research for a class, mm-hmm. but there was a value to it, right? Mm-hmm. And in another way of thinking this, if you're a student, friends, check this out. This is your, you know, friendly professor friend telling you this. The art of skimming is important, especially when you're dealing with primary sources. This particular student is dealing with a lot of primary sources, and sometimes these ancient writers or late medieval writers might get repetitive and Sometimes it gets a little dry. You want to get your eyes scanning the material. Sometimes you, you're you expecting one thing and the material is something else. It's okay to skim at times. You want to find what are those main points that you can remember and not just kind of zone out. But here's the real question I think the students got. That is the, the frustration with the failure of our historical parents, quote unquote, right? It's not our actual parents. We were talking last week about hating your parents, this is this idea of renouncing some of the potential missteps or false paths of our ancestors. Mm-hmm. And so one of the things the students reflecting on is the ways in which we haven't learned from history. You know, we always think, well, we're never going to do the Vietnam problem again, but we kind of do. Right. You know, we're not going to let the Great Depression happen again. We're not going to redo the mistakes of the 2008 housing and, and financial crisis. But we do. It you usually know. just takes slightly different, you know, shapes and forms so that mm-hmm. it, it comes, un, you know, undetected from our radar people, <laughs> or yeah. with enough time passing that people aren't, you know, thinking of that anymore. We thought we had thoroughly rid ourselves of, of fascism and white nationalism. That has resurged, you know, it, or at least it, it pops back up in times of, of chaos where all of a sudden you start to see these voices yeah. that maybe or hear these voices that you wouldn't have heard so, before. 
then is the answer hopelessness? Is the answer yeah. that, you know what, we don't ever learn, so there's nothing there's nothing to ever figure out? Is that the answer? No. And I think that, again, it's about finding those stories that we have neglected. Sometimes these are stories of people on the margins, people that always knew that things weren't perfect. For folks that are in affluent communities, empowered communities, we might be saying, oh, wait a minute, what's wrong now? Like, why is this scary? We're always we're always not afraid. All of a sudden we feel like we don't have control <laughs> right. anymore and that we're completely in the hands of our leaders. And yeah. So sometimes reading stories and ideas from people that maybe we had silenced or not been paying attention to is important. And there's also something we can do on this occasion. That is that we can recognize that things aren't inevitable. I think that this is where we start to despair. When we say, Whenever there's a crisis, it inevitably leads to tyranny or despotism or a dystopia, right? right? It could be that we go towards either fascism or a godless kind of state-driven Marxist communism, but I don't think that's inevitable. Those two 20th century iterations of, of human polity weren't necessarily things that had been done in the past. What could be done now? What could we do now as a society? And is it possible that we could change up the game and say, you know what? We're going to love each other. It's Mm -hmm. possible. And the only thing that's going to stop us really is us. (laughs) (laughs) And yeah, I mean, if if we're coming through this time and learning something through it. Ourselves. Ourselves. Now this is the time to create what will be history, right? Yeah. How how do our generations respond to this? You know, what what do we come out of it, you know, with and, and knowing what can what information can we impart to the future generations? And that's in yeah. our hands. That's history waiting to be written. Yep. Yep. And we're the lore keepers. Yes. <laughs> so I guess we're calling all of us to be historians. Pay attention. Maybe take a journal and share these insights with your grandkids someday. You know, right. this is important. So when we look at the past, one of the things we do see is mistakes, mm-hmm. things that we don't want to do again. I've got four. Four ways in which religious people failed to protect their noggins and made mistakes. Number one, flagellance. That's not flagellance. That's flagellance. That's when medieval people would go around whipping themselves, beating themselves to show God how much they were suffering in an effort not to have the plague hit their village, right? So I've done enough suffering now, yeah. and I'm 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 not high on my horse. I don't feel good about myself. I feel horrible. I somehow deserve punishment. Yeah, I'm giving myself this punishment. God, don't give me your bigger punishment of the plague. Of the plague. Yeah, that was a unhelpful move. A didn't work. B hurt. <laughs> <laughs> well, now you're adding insult to injury. Yeah. Right. So you probably you, you may or may not get the plague. Mm-hmm. And you're hurting yourself preemptively, yeah. which can be entirely unnecessary, as well as if your body is already weak from self-torture, yeah. if the plague does come your way, you're not in the best I state. don't think you're in the best state to recover from it in the way that you would have had you have kept your body intact and <laughs> with less pain. Now, it's true that maybe your tolerance for pain can be increased, <laughs> but I don't goal. think that... <laughs> That is that end justifies the means. And so I think for us to keep our our heads clear, to keep our wits about us, one of the things is to say, you know, this idea of a cruel deity, I understand it when you're facing crises, 
but that's not very helpful. That that kind of negativity and self destructive well behavior, yeah. negative self talk, we could kind of make this metaphorical today. Right. So self torture of any kind isn't going to to help. Um, God isn't all of a sudden going to say, "Oh, you already get it. You're flat yeah. on your back. You're right sad now, enough. So you're sad. You're so you don't need any more sadness." I don't think that that's um, that's what's going to come of it. So I think that we want to caution against mm-hmm. self torture, negative self talk. How you know why we're and I I would say this in general. We haven't been prepared as a country for this, mm-hmm. and a lot of people haven't. But really debating and arguing why we haven't been prepared isn't Whose as helpful. Is. Isn't as helpful as now. What do we do? Moving forward, how do we get the care? And we can analyze it all later and figure out, you know, how to not get ourselves in the same situation. Right. But the blame blame game, just in general, unhelpful. Yeah. You know, it, it isn't going to solve anything. And whether we torture ourselves for not being prepared or whether we're torturing somebody else, mm-hmm. honestly, no good really will come of that. That first business about flagellation, beating yourself up, flows from number two. My point number two is superstition. Generally speaking, the average person during the outbreak of the Black Death in the late Middle Ages and into the early modern period was, for many people, seen to be the direct hand of God. And this is, this is problematic scientifically, and not everybody held it, but there were a lot of folks who thought that what was going on is God was directly punishing some cities for sin and sparing other cities because they were maybe holy— And so they weren't paying attention to science. And this is something that we definitely need to be focusing on today. Dear Christian listeners, can we please, for the love of all things holy, not once again be the people within society that are anti-science, anti-common sense? I'm starting to see it again, right? Where we're the people, for no biblical reason, that we have to deny climate change. Right, So the majority of scientists believe in climate change, but we Christians, we're saying, no, we're not going to buy that. There's a lot of folks with, it's not only a Christian thing, there's a lot of folks that don't really believe in science when it comes to vaccinations. I'm sorry if if we don't see eye to eye on this, at least from my perspective. This is a a real serious issue. But the deal is, if it's scientific or not, why why do the Christians all have to fall in line with a predictable response of rejecting just basic science. Right. You know, I mean, if, if God gives us minds to investigate the world, let's trust those people, not just prophets that think that they have the Holy Spirit that can tell us what to do. But that's what they were doing in the Middle Ages. And guess what happened? It didn't work. And it was unhelpful. And sometimes their superstitions, because they thought it was tied to the church, would give them, they thought it would give them some magical protection. It didn't. And it made it more dangerous for everybody else. They didn't get to the root cause. I also would would say to add to that, again, and from the perspective of protecting your noggin, there will be people that are going to share fake news, if you yeah. will, um, for lack of a better word. Well, that's the, probably, you know, but it, a it, word, I guess. Right. Uh, but I think what's important... Misinformation. Yeah, what's important is to keep your wits about you enough to not just be biased or judge something necessarily just because it's coming from a certain source. Right. Consider the source, consider the facts, and then just see, is this really true? Mm-hmm. Is this, you know, and then go from there. But I think sometimes 
we so badly want to just shortcut and categorize people that we hear we're hearing past each other. Mm. We're not even hearing anything, and mm. all we're doing is, in a sense, at war with sh- sharing, you know, shouting out our own perspective, our own ideas, and some of the facts are getting lost in the concern of whether this is serving somebody's agenda. Yeah, and where you see it serving an agenda, then. Yeah, don't pay any mind to it where you can actually see that there's some legitimacy here, no matter where you're hearing it from, mm-hmm. you know, consider that. And then, you know, and again, you can double check the sources and the facts, you know, it's not about putting aside anything, but it, it honestly is not critically thinking enough sometimes that we react before we actually consider what's being said here. And I think it's important that we consider those facts. Number three is scapegoating. This was something that folks did in the Middle Ages when they didn't know about germ theory. And they blamed the Jews, these outsiders, for the uh, the, the Black Death. Yeah. And so they're, hey, we got this plague going on. We don't understand why it's happening. We seem to be pretty decent, so God's not judging us directly. There must be somebody else. And you look around and you say, what's this outsider about? It's this Jewish family. They don't believe like us. They don't look like us. So the persecution of Jews and the false, talk about fake news, they made up these stories that they were doing black magic, that they were stealing Eucharistic, um, like the wafers, and Mm -hmm. they were re-crucifying Jesus for their magic, that they were poisoning wells so that people would get sick, this sort of thing. And a lot of atrocities occurred against Jews because people needed somebody to blame. And for for our purposes, what we need to do is, when we're looking at history to remember what we do with this, is to say, uh, this is a possibility now, right? And, and we've seen in our area, there's a very large Asian American population. And some of those folks have felt, unfortunately, you know, discriminated against simply because of their heritage, not yeah. necessarily where they've been recently. And that kind of stoking up that business is certainly something that people of goodwill and faith should push against. And I would also argue that if if you want to just attribute this whole virus to one country or one area, I, mean, I think, unfortunately, some of our, our methods of, of even farming or whatever are, are making us more and more susceptible. So right. it's possible that this could have happened somewhere else as well. Well, I'll take another level. Maybe it only could happen with the dense population of China and the way they have their their animal markets. Mm-hmm. But this happens all the time. We can blame, you know... But why are they in that situation, yeah, right? Because, what is creating that? And because we in the West, for instance, have depended, a lot of companies here in the United States depend on unhealthy, unjust practices in other countries... So we can say, oh, they are so cruel. They've got these sweatshops or right. they have, um, you know, this this farming system that's unhealthy. But, but then when we can get something really cheap at Walmart, we kind of, yes. we don't worry about it. So we're benefiting from, you know, low-wage child labor. We just don't see it. And that's something that, you know, Raleigh Sadler, our, our friend who works with the vulnerable populations and human trafficking, has pointed out that that we are implicated in slavery, essentially, but since we don't have literal slaves right in front of us, then we seem to be okay with it. Mm-hmm. And that's really, I think, important. But the main thing is 
scapegoating of any kind is a very dangerous thing. It's very right. common. And so by looking at history, we can avoid it. And then the last, the last lesson of something not to do is uh, the, the lesson of the Killiasts. That's spelled C-H-I-L-L-I-A-S-T. <laughs> it looks more like Chilius. Chilius. That, being chill is the greatest. But no, Chiliasts is, uh, these are millenarians. These are end times people. Now, make no mistake, friends. Up until recently, every morning when I set my alarm, it was to the music <laughs> of, of uh, Tribal Seeds Warning. And the line that really I got Morning. was, you know, there's the whole song is about, uh, well, the, the first line is born in Babylon, but raised by Jah, right? So, so I'm raised by God, God's uh, teachings, and, but, but I'm living in this world that has got false values. And then he says, talk about the modern school systems inferior. You can check out the lyrics all you want. But it says at the end, all you shall witness when Babylon falls. And in one sense, at that, at that level, there is a way in which you could say at any moment like what we've got, there is a certain sense of judgment of, of, of our excess, our lack of concern for people, our, our sense of being perfectly safe from the, the catastrophes that have hit past ages, right? Mm -hmm. You know, that's dangerous for us to ignore that. And it's, and it's true that in one sense, this is like an eschaton. This is like a, an end times kind of scenario in that all these things, all the kingdoms of the world are really brought to account. And, you know, who knows? Like, we don't know where this goes. But I will say that some very dangerous things happened with these millenarians. They got these crazy ideas that were that were not tied to reality, but they were very um, enticing mm -hmm. because people wanted an answer. People wanted to hope for something else, right? Sometimes the fantasy of thinking that maybe the aliens are going to come down at any moment or Jesus is going to come down or there's going to be a rapture to take us out of this is a fantasy that might be helping us escape for a time. But there are things that we need to attend to now, yeah. whether or not it's the end end, right. you know, like that's and not that, very and helpful. That's, and then I think that's part of it is that by sort of just escaping any sense of responsibility, there's, there's that one verse where in the story it talks about to have the, um, the oil in your lamps and that when you, oh, keep your lamps trimmed and burning. Jesus talks about this, the right. parable, yeah. And then some of them, you know, they want they were like, oh, we're going to run out of it, right? Like people that maybe are thinking, oh, well, the end times are here. There's nothing I should do. I don't have any responsibility. Like this is just all going to implode and we're just going to sit back and watch it all implode. I don't think that's the message that, that Jesus was trying to share or that the Bible had talked about either, right? No, he's that saying... We still keep up on work. things. Yeah. Do your work. Right. And when it comes, then, then we're ready to receive. But don't just... Don't give up or don't stop or don't shirk your responsibility of what things you should be taking care of, thinking, oh, this is the end times yeah. and that this is what we've been waiting for and, you know, let, let God's judgment come. Mm. Like, yeah, like that's that. Not going to help anybody. The Kiliasts of the past, the, the lesson that they teach us is that they were wrong in a sense. It was the end of an era, 
many times, but it wasn't the end end. There well, was something look else. At, and you look through history and there were lots of times where people thought that is, this is the end. Yep. Around the year 1000, <laughs> it seemed like it, right? This would be a good time. Certainly if I was living during World War II and Hitler's on the scene, I'd think, well, there's your Antichrist. This is the end of the world. How are we ever going to rebuild from this? Mm-hmm. Well, World War II, that was on the heels of World War I. If I went through World War I, I'd think it's the end of the world. I would have I had a hard time keeping the faith yeah. during all that. And a lot of people did. The Lost Generation and the Black Death, that would have seemed like the end of the world. Mm-hmm. And, on, and on the fall of Rome. I mean, it just there's all these times when, when things happen. And then right around the corner might have been a really nice thing. Mm-hmm. So there's no reason to give up. There's no reason to lose our heads. And for our purposes, we're going to you know, stay tuned to, to Jeff and Stacy here on the Protection <laughs> Noggin because we're going to be keeping an eye on some of these ways in which um, people go a little nutty. You're in your house a little while. You start to come up with weird conspiracy theories. Yeah. You spread them out. You say it's religious, and you get your religious friends involved. We got to help each other. Keep it cool. <laughs> so we've seen in... in- past there's been mistakes or whatever now what are some positive lessons that we might have learned from history uh that have we see that all these terrible times have happened before right what are some of the things that i've got four more baby (laughs) all right but i'll go through these quicker number one methodological naturalism in protestant academies arose that's a mouthful it's a mouthful but what it meant was surprisingly even the calvinists who believe in predestination at the university or i'm sorry at the academy of geneva they kept their medical department going, even when the plague threatened to shut the the whole grad school down, mm-hmm. they said, the theological faculty said, we need to keep our doctors trained. So they, the pastors said, we won't take any money for a while as we teach theology, but we want to make sure that we don't lose our faculty in medicine because they realized that they needed to understand how to address the virus or in this case, or the bacteria, but the, the pathogen in a way that was scientifically sound. And uh, that's a really good model for us. That's mm-hmm. a really good model for us. This happened also with Luther. Luther's got a treatise on the plague for the Wittenberg faculty. They said we should be brave. We should face death bravely. And if we can help, we should help. We shouldn't run away from people who uh, are needing our help during the time of the plague. At the same time, we don't want to be reckless. We don't want to think that that the Holy Spirit's going to protect us from naturalistic things. So methodological naturalism is where you're going to do your science and you can believe in God, but you're not going to have God be part of the Petri dish experiment. Mm-hmm. That don't make that kind of shortcut happen. Number two, Reformation era hospitals. So one of the things that people realized, especially as cities reformed, as these urban centers started to take ownership over um, care for people that had been something that the that the Roman Church, the Catholic Church, had been doing. Uh, most people are surprised to find a lot of conservative Christians are surprised to find the ways in which the Reformed Calvinistic side and then the Lutheran side both thought that things like poverty and health care were the responsibility of the whole community because people are poor or sick because of industries. Mm-hmm. Right, it, the way we farm, the way we pollute the water, all of these things are going to affect people. The least we can do is treat these problems as communal problems that can be fixed with our minds. Right, we can use yeah. uh, our, our wisdom. I was reading just kind of recently that the idea of if you're afraid of death and you're afraid of your of your you know of dying and your own death, then it will shut you off from you know, thinking about 
some of these things and so that it turns into more of the just world fallacy or whatever because you're thinking I have withstood this you know so if you're so far withstanding this virus and you know maybe it's even you know through some of your stupid superstitious things or whatever you're going to look at all of the reasons why you might have withstood it uh, to figure out why were you you know why did you survive this right and and when it comes to like something like Vietnam where somebody has gone off to war and then they all of a sudden come back home and they survive the war, but then they die in a car accident shortly after. It just feels like it doesn't add up. Like, why is there this disconnect from like, I survived this major thing. Mm. Right. But then this like kind of worldly minor thing, you know, took my life away. And that when we are thinking that it is just because that we somehow deserved what has happened to us, whether it be for the good or the bad, that, that's a, a scary proposition that being able to face the fact that we're going to die one day, period. And we just don't know exactly how this is going to go down, right? Right. But what we can do to help each other in the meantime is what makes the difference rather than just saying, I escaped this and what did I do differently and, right. and everybody else should do this and that somehow I'm in this, you know, category that makes me higher and you know that I should survive it and these other people shouldn't we should figure out why they are suffering in this society why are they in the place that they're at and then how do we help them goes back to that just world hypothesis that is so dangerous right now the vulnerable people are weak and they don't deserve to live that kind of thing I'm seeing that from some right-wing sources it's kind of a soft kind of Nazi move, which is to say the Nazis are going to, you know, speed it up. But we're basically seeing the social Darwinism. Everybody was so afraid in the Christian world of scientific Darwinism as it came to biology. What we really should have been worried about is that godless 19th century industrialist Darwinism, that social Darwinism that said the the weak need to be weeded out. The yeah. failures. Well, and even, and I'm sorry, I don't want to keep prolonging this, but my parents, <laughs> they got a call from their city manager and, and just said, we want to check on you, see how you're doing. And, you know, my parents are in their early 70s. And my mom was like, well, I guess we're we're the old and vulnerable now. And yeah. they never saw themselves that way because they're completely self-sufficient. Right. <laughs> you know, they, they do their own thing. It but helps that they're out in the desert, not really too close to anybody. <laughs> of course. But what I'm saying is, is that all of a sudden they get this phone call and they're like, oh, I guess we yeah. are the vulnerables. We yeah. are somebody that maybe, maybe chosen not to give a ventilator to for somebody else yeah. when they feel very much alive and yep. feel yep. very much like, I'm not dead. I feel happy. Not dead you know? yet. I feel happy. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So like, you know, how spirited do you have to like, you know, show yourself in the hospital to say I'm worth, you know, keeping like, that's really sad anyway. Yeah. But my point is, <laughs> is that we all don't feel like death is in our midst like it we feel like we could live forever often and don't face and it. when we when we can shed that fear and we can shed then we can also stop the the superstition the scapegoating and all of these right. things that fear leads know, to those things that were naughty the self-destructive stuff that yeah that we're doing anyway Facing reality helps us to be sane about some of these things. That's but we mentioned point. the hospital. Sorry. Yeah, so. no, that's great. And then uh, the, the third point is co- cosmopolitan joy post-World War II. This mm. is a lesson. Mm-hmm. And we only knew this because we had gone to uh, check out the place where Uva Simonetto 
and Jillian, his wife, lived. And Jillian is British, and he is German. And they lived in France with friends from around the world. And they were telling us about this time that I didn't even know happened, where people from all around the world that had been part of countries that were at war with one another, the children of the people who were at war with one another were now getting married with one another, saw themselves as unified. It was like small world at Disneyland. Yeah, they all like sought this like solace, you know, hanging out together, doing house parties and really joining together as a community with that one common thing that they had yeah. all sort of survived this, that, yeah. And and they were more loving towards one another. They were more open to meeting new people. And there was kind of a, a, a fun time. Now, the part of the problem, I think, was that, that was they were kind of the early generation. And kids that maybe grew up a little bit later started to take it for granted. Mm. And I think that's kind of where we get off track again, where, where after World War II is over and we have, especially in the United States, economic flourishing, despite some things in the 70s and the Cold War, by and large things were pretty smooth and people were able to get out of college and have economic success even if they weren't at the top of their class. So people essentially were born on third base and they thought they hit a triple mm-hmm. and they didn't take, I think, the the time to really respect the joy that they, they were experiencing. Certainly what I'm saying is as we press through this moment of crisis, I'm hoping that we don't end up on the other side with tyranny and despotism, but mm-hmm. instead with a return to care for all of our community mm-hmm. and for the least, the last, the lost, those who got crushed. I'm seeing this a little bit in at least some celebrities and um, and some business people who recognize that they can't have their businesses running if people don't have jobs, if people don't have their health, if they don't have income. You can't sell iPods. You know, and so we are. When we say that we're all in this to, in in this together, I think we're starting to recognize the way in which not only are we all in this together during these times where we've got these different layers strata of society, we're all in this together globally. Mm-hmm. That that the locusts in in Africa have some effect on all of us, even if we're not immediately experiencing it. And then the fourth positive thing from history is the civil rights movement. Around the same time that people were starting to see in Europe the brotherhood and sisterhood of humanity, in the United States, we were slow to come to the table here, but eventually these things then I think translate to the way we treat one another within the United States. Yeah, We've pulled back on that. We mm-hmm. pulled back on that, unfortunately. I mean, even in my own, like in, in Lutheran circles, um, th- there was a, 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 a pretty strong period of time in, in the late 60s and uh, the 70s where where people that were in conservative Christian circles were interested in racial justice. Then there was some pullback on that for various reasons later. But but what, I, what I'm thinking is that this would be a good moment to return to the question of human rights because when we start to feel like, oh no, I need help. Mm-hmm. Then you start to realize that all of the masses of people that need help aren't necessarily bad people. They might be unlucky people. That's a really important lesson well, from I history. Think the other thing, too, with the civil rights movement is that, again, it's about the individual and we each have rights. No matter where you fall in the socioeconomic, you know, whole the status level or whatever, 
each person is an individual and they each matter. That is what gave rise to sort of patients' rights and mm. even sort of the whole hospice movement because in, you know, even as it comes to our medical care, like what is a patient's rights? Like, do they, should they know what's happening with them or do we, you know, keep them in the dark that they are terminally ill? You know, at what point should they be involved in the decision making or do loved ones make it for them? And so this, the whole civil rights movement gave, right, you know, this introduction into patients' rights and that we, unfortunately, our fear of death has often sort of pushed those people aside as if they can't make individual decisions for themselves anymore, that they are no longer, you know, the same productive member in society that even knows what to do in this circumstance, yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and that the the difficult part is, is that when it does concern ourselves and our own bodies, like we should have a say if we want to. And if, you know, I also would agree that if we want to stay in the dark and not necessarily know, and our families know that, and you probably have all kind of like winked at each other and know that like nobody really wants to talk about it. That's okay too. But it, just to ignore people or when they especially do want to talk about something or whatever is not helpful. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so I think just what, you know, what is an individual's rights in this whole scenario is important. You know, um, even when it comes down to in the hospitals, if we get to the point where we're running out of ventilators, I mean, even being able to share with somebody, we can't help you right now with this because of X, Y, or Z that in a, is better than, oh, it's coming. Ventilators are coming. Ventilators are right. coming. And they're not coming. Lying to people. Lying to people. And we think that that's going to be better. No. Like, I think we need to tell people honestly what the situation is. Honesty and, not, and transparency are usually less unsettling. Yes. It's the unknown that scares us, that makes us, you know, I don't know. We, we don't know what to do. We don't know who to trust. We don't know who to go to. So... What I want to do is I want to play a, a little bit of uh, that song, Tribal Seeds, Warning to uh, kind of transition us over. When we come back, uh, we're going to look at four examples of unhealthy responses from religious communities or people that are against religious communities, but religious responses to the pandemic. We'll go through those briefly, but the main thing we want to hit after the break, we want to end with some suggestions about how to fill our time with healthy things, things that are going to keep us uh, moving in the right direction and uplifted. We'll be right back. i 
so glad you're still with us, friends. That's what I wake up to in the morning. <laughs> Which, I don't know, for me, um, I find it a little bit rough because uh, I'm hearing the first thing in my day is warning. And like, I wake up and I'm in a pretty good mood. <laughs> and all of a sudden, I'm like, oh, no, like, what is going on? I need, you know, like, and I know now it's just the song. So that's no, funny. a song's not just a song, <laughs> and I'm not listening to it now. It was just in the in the past. It made me feel better that somebody else noticed yeah. that there were some things maybe that were so on the I, horizon. I chose a different song. Maybe at the end of the show, we'll we'll play my song then later on, um, so they can hear what I like to wake All up. All right, to we'll stick with that in a moment. So. Quickly, I'd like to hit four unhealthy responses that are going on now from religious communities. This is Protect Your Noggin. We've got to help uh, ourselves and others outfox religious wolves. Sometimes these religious wolves care more about their own uh, importance or the financial well-being of, of their ministries or whatever to uh, the detriment of folks that are their flock that are trusting them. So let's look at these. Number one. Governors in four states have allowed religious exemptions for church gatherings. I don't know. It's not the worst thing for Americans to see that there are at least some aspects where the government's going to respect religious liberty. Mm-hmm. Okay. Not so much worried about the governors doing this. I'm worried about the churches who... Putting pressure on people yeah. to attend if you don't feel that or you Or the government, to. right? Like, yeah. why should this be an issue? It should be that the church is saying... What is the best science? What's the best thing we should be doing? How can we be of service to our fellow humanity, you know, to our fellow human beings? This takes me to this idea that that in the 16th century, my main area of of study, it was always kind of curious to me that the the Protestants so often wanted to make sure that the church didn't interfere in these, these aspects of life that they had inserted themselves into. You know, how we raise our babies, where do we do we sleep with them, do we put them in boxes or cribs? These are things that churches would get involved in, right? Right. They would they would insert themselves into it. Luther says that if church people do something bad, they shouldn't handle it on their own. They should be subject to the government, just like everybody else. There's no special status. I think this is really important for the protector noggin overarching mission, which is, we've said it before, this idea that that clergy or church leaders are outside the law or operate within their own system and don't have to obey the laws of the land and basic decency. The idea that they should be protected from otherwise normal prosecution for misbehavior is a problem. So if you don't think people should be going to movie theaters and you think you're going to close that down, why should churches have a special exemption? That's not really what religious freedom is about. Religious freedom is about me being able to have my beliefs and not have the, the you know government throw me into jail for those beliefs. Right. But if I'm going to go endanger others, mm, that doesn't quite count. Well, I would also say that, yeah, just because you are going to exercise a certain right that you might have, that also make sure that you aren't not that you aren't also making decisions for other people yeah. on their behalf. And, and, and I think that transparency is helpful. So if you are somebody that is choosing to meet in person with church, then also like be careful about who else you're around when you, you know, afterwards, yeah. are you, 
going to be around elderly parents or something like that would just be silly. Like in other words, at least let them know that you've participated in in, in gatherings. Yeah. And then go back to your home and let them decide whether or not they're going to hang out with you if they have the, you know, if they, or, you know, quarantine themselves in a bedroom if they're living in the same house or whatever. I just think that making sure that we there's clarity there clarity and, and talk about, you know, we know that we are going to be infected probably in one way, shape, or form from, we said, our daughter-in-law, you know, working in a grocery store. So because of that, we're certainly not going to meet with any of other family members, Mm -hmm. which, you know, we're trying to not do that anyway. But the point is, is that we also are minimizing any time that we're in public because we could be carriers and not know it. Right. So just... We're making decisions. We're... But being, being smart about those decisions. The second story, which I find is upsetting because it kind of goes against this whole thing of agency and people making their decisions, but it's about Calvary church in Naperville. And there is an article that you can read up on it. Um, We've got it on our website, protectyournoggin.org. If you go to the show page for the show notes, Julie Roy's writes about this. Yeah. And it's basically about this. There's a mega church that's in Chicago that they, the assistant pastor has been exposed or was exposed, was positive for the virus and then continued to, with his family to also in, be involved in videos and, and movie making and stuff, which other people were, do, you know, filming and things like that. And, and I think the film, the guy who was filming it got infected. Right. And so basically... Didn't know it was happening. Yeah. So when you're making decisions to carry on with things, even though you could be positive or, you know, have been around people that have tested positive, you're, if you're not telling them some of this information, like you're making decisions for on behalf of them for their own life. And then the people that they're around, you know, who are the loved ones that they go back home to and should they be exposed to it? And what this church, they didn't, what they were trying to do is just not share that their staff had tested positive or something that some of them had. And they told the staff they had to keep it secret. Yeah. And that uh, at least allegedly, according to Julie Roy's article, that they were also, essentially threatened their jobs might have been threatened if they told people about it and so eventually with news sort of pushing them they were they did release emails and stuff to their bigger community but i think that that's another example of how sometimes we think we're protecting people by keeping things under wraps and Mm -hmm. pretending like we aren't you know what if the pastor thinks that oh because we're infected with this that we might be labeled as somebody that God is against, you know, right. to try to be wiped oh, well, out, you know. Or but, just it's going to hurt business. Yeah, who knows what will go into that line of thinking. But the fact that just not being upfront with your members, I mean, that that to me is so disturbing that you can't, whatever you're being faced with, the whole point of the church community is we're in this together. Let's do this together. Mm-hmm. And to think that you have to hide something from them and then make decisions on their behalf without yeah. them knowing that they are exposing themselves inadvertently to certain certain things like like that's that you know that that scary mentality that we might even know better more you know what's better for you than you know for yourself yeah or they just don't care we've said this before on the show you think in the short term that you're going to protect the financial well being of your church I'm pretty sure that this isn't going to help them. I think if I went to that church, if I went to a church where I knew that the that the clergy were hiding something that was going to affect the well-being of my grandma mm-hmm. or my mom or myself, 
I'm not sure I trust them with other things. Right. How can they be giving me spiritual care if they're going to, if they're going to do this? And so in the long run, this is not good press. Right. <laughs> you know, you can try to hide it, but that's not going to, that's not going to do you any, any good. The third though is not, the third story isn't from Christians. It's actually from people that are ex-Christians and folks that are opposed to Christians. And that's this idea. Um, there are several memes and, you know, kind of casual from the hip opinions going on online related to this idea that because Christians are anti-science, that this is kind of like the Darwin Awards where go ahead, I've seen this online, go ahead and let Christians go to church so that we can get rid of these oh, anti-intellectual gosh. Christians and then all the stupid ones, all the stupid ones will, will uh, weed themselves out. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, um, some, there's gallows humor. People are trying to be funny. And in a sense, it is true that if if people are being dangerous and if they're if they've got they're dangerous be ideologies, more to yeah. So some it, of the you issues. know, the Tao does come back and bite you. <laughs> you know, if you but if to you, say that that yeah. you know that that's that's what not you're a loving hoping. response. No, not no. at all. No, and, and, and yeah. also, I mean, I think it does undermine. Um, you know that. And we'll talk about this a little bit more later, but there is a sense of loss happening then when people can't yeah. gather together as a community. Sure. You yeah. know, whether it's in church or whether it's, you know, hanging out at a at a bar with your friends in general, like, you know, yeah. those those community groups that we've built yeah. mean a lot to us. For some people you know? these are this is their whole life and now they're lonely. Yeah. You know, I get that. So we don't wanna laugh about that. But but there is this sense in which, as we said earlier in the show, over and over Christians have demonstrated this kind of odd resistance to facts related to science. And so we've kind of lost, we've kind of lost some credibility there. And so there are folks outside saying, okay, have at it. You try your way, we'll try ours. All right. So, I mean, you know, but at the same time, that kind of negative spirit, I think is not helpful at this time. And then the fourth. (laughs) Yes. So that's when we're, and I'm laughing because, I mean, it's really not funny. It's at uncomfortable. All. But letting unrelated political issues negatively affect our collective well being. And so when we politicize something as tragic as what is happening here and all sorts of different things to promote our own agenda, mm-hmm. it's not helpful. And I yeah. guess one of the most obvious was more recently with Greg Kokel. You- yeah, well, Greg Kokel is, uh, I, I've met him and we got on fine. He seemed like a nice guy. He's an apologist. He he does a he has a ministry where he's arguing for the faith. He's arguing for Christianity. But um, I don't know too much about him. When I was young, I used to hear him on the radio once in a while. But Stacey, would you read this this tweet that he that he tweeted? It's curious that multitudes of women who say they can do whatever they want with their own bodies willingly submit their own bodies to de facto house arrest which is shelter in place because the government is currently telling them what they can do with their own bodies. <laughs> now, I, like I said, we, we, we're all, you know, kind of locked up. I'm sure I say stupid things on tweets, but, but I just have to call this out because he's part of this world that I live in of, of evangelicalism, American Christianity. This is, this is problematic on several levels. First of all, it's just it's tone deaf, yeah. right? I mean, practically speaking. So you're gonna you're gonna be talking about you're gonna be talking about abortion. This doesn't really have a lot to do with abortion, and being told to stay in place for the health of the community. It, ah, that's a real that's a real reach, and it's not 
the right spirit. This is not the spirit of Christians. Like, ha ha, look at you. You. It's as if there's these other people. There's these other people and there's us. There's the baby killers and there's us good ones. This is, this is not helpful at this time for a Christian uh, public right. voice. Fortunately, a friend of ours that we've met, a few, <laughs> like uh, uh, Rick Manifo, he kind of called him to account on this and, um, and said, hey, this, this, is, this is insightful. And he spells it incite, like inciting mm-hmm. animosity instead of insight, I-N-S-I-G-H-T. I thought he had a good response. But, here, but here's the thing. Um, first of all, we'll, we'll, we could talk about like agency and reproduction in our bodies and so forth. But whenever you want to get real, you know, have a hot take on this, we got to make it very clear, all of us, that when people think that maybe they don't want to live that is end-of-life issues, or when people think they don't want to have a baby, there's something wrong that we might have something to do with here, right? That the world is not a happy enough place. The world is not a thriving enough place. People don't make decisions like that when everything's just great. And so when you're going to rub it in somebody's nose, young people that that are looking for hope and advice... Yeah. They don't need snark like this, right? And I, th- I, I, I think this has very little to do with Christianity, and I think it has a lot to do with Christians, conservative Christians, needing to support what the what their their proposed leader of Donald Trump is saying. Mm-hmm. So if Donald Trump is saying we need to get people back into the workforce so that I can get reelected, so that the economy isn't bad, this is my suspicion. I think this is going on. And so then all of a sudden, what do we do? We've got a bunch of minions who are not followers primarily of Jesus. Jesus is cool. He's our mascot. But the real thing is we need to support getting people back out there and that these, that these, um, these policies of kind of getting us to, to social distance, this is, this is what the liberals want. This is what the, the world that is not Christian wants. That's a false that's mm-hmm. a false boundary that's being created, and I think it's being created for the same reason I could even add it here, Liberty University trying to get the, the students to go back right. to to support a political leader rather than just the general where, welfare of people. Now, I'll leave it open. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe we're overreacting. Well, and, and one thing you, you threw out there, and I just want to explain a little bit more, is you mentioned with end of life, and, and some of that that comes in there. Well, part of it, what you're referring to, I think, is you would ask me, well, what about euthanasia? Yeah, do right? people discuss it you know, in we your, talk in about, your field? We talk about how you know people should maybe perhaps be able to like die how they want to die, right? So then what is the, the common thoughts on euthanasia when it comes to end-of-life care? And where where what I've learned and what I definitely hold on to is that when somebody wants to end their life in that way, somehow we're doing it wrong and somehow we're missing the mark that if, if it's because of pain, you know, whether, whatever, whether it's physical, psychological, emotional, spiritual, whatever, somehow we've missed the mark and are not helping this person. And, and maybe we you say in most cases, because I think sometimes there are folks that say, you got to deal with it because that's what we do. And it's kind of this philosophical question, not a, a care question. There, there, say, there, yeah, there are definitely times. In the vast where, majority of cases. So. Yes, there are. Yeah, there are definitely times where there can be exceptions and, and all the way around. But the idea that for the most part, what people think of as wanting to end their life when they're faced with some sort of terminal illness, often there's somehow their needs aren't being met. Right. And that's the only reason they're choosing this. Yeah. So whatever that need is, 
similarly with anybody that doesn't want to have babies or whatever, let's figure out like where, you know, where are we going wrong here? Why are they coming to this conclusion in their life? And that's, that's not a, that's not just something just to easily gloss over. And I'm not saying that, you know, that, that these aren't possible. Like I, I don't know what to do with it, but I do know that, that that's a brokenness in society Mm -hmm. when Mm -hmm. we get to that point and we don't, the whole, the whole point here, (laughs) I would say is with, again, with the collective well being and in the situation of how you might view things, don't capitalize people's broken, capitalize on people's brokenness. Yeah. For For some other agenda, agenda of some kind. Yeah. Right. Hear the pain. Figure yeah. out, you know, why it's there and let's, let's come up with some real solutions, but to just throw attention getting, you know, propaganda towards a certain idea that yeah. that's unhelpful, unhelpful for any of us. Now let's turn to some positive things. How can we help people? Maybe we're, we're going to give you eight suggestions of things you might want to check out while you're stuck at home on the couch and uh, hanging out with your family, maybe you alone or maybe you with a family might want to look into some of these things. But friends, you can go to protectyournoggin.org. It's really easy to find a spot there where you can click on and you can leave a voice message. It could be something unrelated to what we've been talking about. But if you have any specific encouragements or recommendations or insights, things that you've encountered, weird things that you've seen, positive things that you've seen, hey, we might not use it, but you know. Maybe you got some time on your hands. Give us a little give us a little message. We'd love to either put it on the show or respond to it privately as uh, as we see, but we've got eight eight things here at least from us to you. Our gifts don't cost any money. Number 1. Number 1, the Sermon on the Mount. <laughs> I mean, come on. Now, I'll just say this quickly that there is uh, on Dow Surfers, that's T A O, dowsurfers.com. I have posted the transcript of something that I found with Augie, my son, at UCI in the archives right before they closed down the archives. I took photographs, and Augie took photographs with our our phones, and it's this piece from the guy who built the little castle behind behind the property we got down in San Diego, and it's called Evolove, E-V-O-L-O-V-E. It's a palindrome, and it's about... This this kind of fictitious story where this this guy who is a capitalist, uh, uh, an industrialist, and he and he ends up having health problems. So his doctor makes him take a break, kind of like what we're doing with now. So mm-hmm. I thought it was fun. And he goes down, he takes a break, and he goes and he finds this lost uh, tribe of, of Native Americans who teach him a new way. And so he writes like his repentance. He's kind of mm-hmm. come to see things in a new way. And he encounters somebody who is a German. And this is around... You know, the, this was after World War I when this was written. It's 1920s. And this guy from uh, World War I was German, and he got imprisoned because they were worried that maybe he was, you know, a spy for Germany or something. But he found that the main part of the story that's worth reading on this transcript that I've got is how the Sermon on the Mount that he was preaching was seen to be taboo or problematic during the war. That is this idea that we should love our enemies was something that they didn't want to highlight. So that's kind of a fun that's kind of a fun one for our times. I think the Sermon on the Mount is very powerful for us now because it'll help us to be able to give love to our immediate communities. That's how we deal with these big massive problems. We start with the love for people that are right 
in our midst. Number two. Number two is the Tao Te Ching. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> we, <laughs> we, oh no, we've we've talked about this a lot, but we've also spent a lot of time on, on it, and it has been really helpful, primarily because we have felt sort of this this aggressive Yang energy in our society, and when there is that, there's also somehow, and often the Tao will talk the the Tao Te Ching will talk about how the Tao then somehow like it will correct itself and that yin it naturally does it you know. naturally that yin will enter the scene. And I think that in our yang world, we are forced into a yin situation of yeah. having to withdraw a little bit. You know, some of us are still, you know, working from home, but it's a whole different environment. It's a whole different thing of where we're taking a step back. And, and that's what the Wu Wei talks about even is just acting by not acting. Right. So then when you can kind of, look and, and you know, absorb and then look at the big picture and then you can come at, you know, your solutions or how you're going to, you know, enter back into life when we get there. Uh, you know, how do you want that? What do you want that to look like? You have this moment here to reflect a little bit, to reevaluate certain things. Mm-hmm. What will, what will that mean going forward? We mentioned that this is our time to become the history, the history of the future. Yeah. And let's make history. We're gonna make history and how do we how do we tell people to bounce back from something like this or or not? You know, what things do we change? What what becomes important? And you know, what what we do, what actions that we decide to move forward with is the future history, no matter what that is, and we have a chance to write it. Mm-hmm. It's in our hands. And one of the things that I appreciate comes from a chapter of <laughs> Lao Tzu, and I, if you don't mind if I read it. Please, please. Uh, so I'll, I'll, I'll go chapter? ahead and read. It's 64. It's kind of long, but I do think it, it's... Apropos. Help, for the times, yes. Peace, when peaceful, is easy to keep. With no superstitions, it's easy to make decisions. Rigid things easily shatter. Little grains... Easily scatter. Deal with trouble before it arises. De-escalate quarrels before they get out of hand. Massive trees start out as tiny shoots. Skyscrapers start out as vacant dirt lots. A thousand mile trek begins with a single step. Micromanagers don't manage to manage. Those who are clingy, let relationships slip through their fingers. Therefore, the sage doesn't micromanage, and she manages just fine. She isn't clingy, and everyone holds fast to her. People often get cocky at the end of a project and botch things just before they succeed. Stay as attentive at the end as you were at the start, and your project won't fail. So the sage stays detached from attachments. She doesn't care about luxuries. She's open-minded, not dogmatic. She notices what men overlook. She helps all the things by letting them flourish naturally. She's no meddler. 
I think I like those turns of phrase. In 64, that means we haven't gone over it 18 times. The earlier, <laughs> yeah. the more we've gone through it. But I like that one. Friends, a shameless plug here. Even if you're at the most basic level of patron through Patreon, you can click on that through our website. Then you, every week, will get one reflection. Um, and, in fact, I do a written reflection. Stacy does an audio reflection on each of these chapters that we're working through. Why did this particular chapter stand out to you for us to discuss yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of things within here. There's one particular thing that I that struck me in the first place, which brought me to wanting to look up what this chapter was, and that part is uh, a thousand mile trek begins with a single step. A famous line. Yeah. yeah, and there's a few different other ways it says, but massive trees start out as tiny shoots, skyscrapers start out as vacant dirt lots, and I think that when we mention that, we're at the point of making history. <laughs> you know, what what yeah. is current, what always is present, eventually does become history in some way, shape, or form. And sometimes it's overwhelming to think of, you know, what is this big message that we're going to send to the next generations? But if you break it down to the small pieces, and you just start with one thing, and then it can get you that much further, that wherever you might have messed up in the past or whatever, just realize this is a time to recreate in a sense or create a new right to repent of any past ways Mm. and then what does it look like to live in the the new logic going forward what is it like to then you know as we you know sometimes it's overwhelming to think that you have to like have the whole big picture and and make the whole beautiful thing happen perfectly (laughs) but it doesn't happen that way in life that we can't control the whole global Scene. So one action that you might do today, even for your own self and in getting, you know, maybe some sort of grounding or whatever for your own self so that then you can offer it to your family and then later provide it to the community and to the nation as a whole. That's how it grows. And it starts with one person <laughs> in a weird way. Think of it this way. This virus has been able to spread by just individuals, infiltrating individuals yeah. one at a time. And then notice how it can go throughout multiple countries. It can be exponentially growing. Yes. I hear where you're going with this, baby. Love can do this. Love you know? can be exponential. <laughs> Love can... So we also have, you know, have a cure of some sorts, at least to make it more bearable, even if while we're in the midst of suffering, that we can offer love and hope to one another. That is something that is also contagious. Yeah. So I... That's right. The and and it starts yeah. with one step one small thing that you do that it can grow don't if you think of the whole big picture then it gets overwhelming Mm. as as well as it's also not always on us like it says that the micromanagers never manage manage. manage. i I, I have to say i'm (laughs) pretty proud of that one micromanagers don't manage to manage (laughs) <laughs> right, because they're not managing at that point. Yeah. They're just dictating. Or they're reacting to and, little problems. And Right, know. when you get good people in places where they should be or people that are you know capable people of doing what they're supposed to be doing, then you rest as you know the manager and you just oversee things and, and just make sure people are all you know on target and yep. things and that you don't need to support everybody. Your job as a manager isn't always to just get people in trouble. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's it's also that, you know, how do we how do we make the best of each of the employees? How do we best help them and support them so that they can then, 
you know, thrive, thrive in, yeah, in, in, in a certain environment. The other thing I think is interesting is the people often get cocky at the end of a project and botch things uh, just before they succeed. Uh-huh. If what we're doing at home is about flattening the, the curve, it might look silly that we took these greater precautions because if it works, then we're not going to have this big, you know, run on the hospitals and everything else. And we'll say, what was the point? What was the point? Or we might let up too soon and then people get infected and then the curve that we were worried about does come about. There's all these possibilities that that can happen. If we lose our nerve. If we lose the nerve to do what you're doing, but also, yeah, stay as, it says stay as attentive at the end as you were at the start of your project and you won't fail. And and I think that sometimes, you know, as a seven type personality that wants to move on to something else, you see something yep. working, you're like, okay, now what else are we going to accomplish? You just want to make sure that you are, that you don't lose your, your sight of what the original goal is and, and that when you are successful at that, especially when you recognize that that was the goal and then that's what's happening, then be grateful that that happened. And then again, Going around doing blame games of, you know, and how much else has been lost in the process isn't helpful. So to recap so far, number one, go find yourself a copy of the Sermon on the Mount. That's in Matthew 5. Two, get yourself uh, uh, access to the Tao Te Ching. You can, you can hang out with us and our rendering. We also really recommend the work of Derek Lynn or uh, Stanley Lombardo and uh, a gentleman named Addis, and they have a translation those are good, really academically helpful texts. There are others as well. There's a guy named Stephen Mitchell who's got a more kind of new agey but readable translation. But basically the fun thing about the Tao Te Ching translations is you can kind of enjoy multiple translations because none of them are really able to get at all of the facets of that text. Number three for me Native American history. I finally found, I was saying that I was having a hard time finding something to stream. I finally found something that didn't make me anxious, didn't freak me out. It was uh, documentaries about Native America, but specifically, I wanted to find folks that were going to recreate the thriving that they did. A lot of the time, and it's for good reason, the documentaries you're going to find about you know, American Indians or Native Americans, First Nations people in Canada... Um, are going to be very sad stories. And it's not that I don't think those things should be shared, and we've really got an interest in this. But at the same time, when I'm trying goes, to fall it asleep... It goes back to the depressing and the, do we ever learn from history? Those, right. you know, Some of those that are like... Right, okay, here we know. go again. The Europeans came in and they, they wiped everybody out with disease. They enslaved people, but they didn't have enough people to enslave. So then we then saw Europeans going and getting African slaves. It's just... History can be a bummer. Okay, back to back to the students' question directly. That there is this sense in which, man, okay, can we can we avoid that? Can we avoid dehumanizing people, mm-hmm. indigenous people in particular? Well, okay, but what I wanted to do is say we're facing this this crisis related to pathogens. They did too. So, what was the takeaway? What did they learn that we can learn from, and then we can learn some things and pass it on to the next era. So before the Europeans got here in the current situation we find ourselves in, in the United States, there were people living all throughout North America, and they had advanced societies. They had 
various societies, very different ways of living, different beliefs, different um, ways of dealing with the land, some more um, at balance with nature, sometimes not so much in balance with nature. So we're finding out all sorts of things. I particularly like the PBS special Native America First Look. I'll link to that. There's some others. I'm interested in stuff that happened before Columbus. There's a book that you could read, 1491, shows a lot of the new research about the, the, the stuff that we're finding about groups that came in to the Western Hemisphere, the different migrations, and most importantly, the ways in which we never really realized how many people and how much they were affecting the land uh, and managing it. Because by the time European settlers got to some of these places, those populations had been wiped out. So they didn't realize how much was going on before, essentially, the conquest. Number four is economic history for me. So I like learning from Native American culture. I think that's that's just kind of takes my mind out of our current situation, but isn't fantasy. It's a real thing. I also like looking at economic history. I'm reading right now with some, f- some friends and colleagues, Eugene McCarraher, The Enchantments of Mammon, How Capitalism Became the Religion of Modernity. Now, one of the reasons I like this, but also it makes me sad, is that it's covering a lot of what I was originally hoping to do with my research on, on Molech. I'm calling it Molech, Molech being the religion of, of cruel power. But he focuses on Mammon, this idea of the god of wealth, the god of money. And the reason this is an interesting book, you could find a different one, is that we are in such a different world uh, from any that we've experienced before. And so economic theories are going to have to change somewhat because of automation, because of the population growth, because of just all these changes. Things that that made sense maybe in the 1700s aren't going to make as much sense now. And so we're going to have to rebuild as a, as a global society with maybe reconfiguring our expectations about the role of government and the, and the role of the economy, the monetary system. All of these things are kind of constructed recently, and they're not the only way to do it. People have lived in different ways. Mm-hmm. Sometimes people didn't lend it interest. Sometimes people didn't use or didn't focus on a money economy. So what are these different things that we can learn from? So I think it's it's just fun and interesting to go back, study economic history. And then number five, just just to make it easy, go find yourself a nature documentary. Just enjoy this beautiful organic life that we're living in. Even if you've got to be indoors, <laughs> it kind of takes you outside and you can watch deer running around and uh, butterflies molting and so forth. <laughs> just be careful those ones where it always just talks about how they're being preyed upon well, in the death. Cause that's true. I will say that yeah, that can get depressing. That can, that can go horribly wrong really when a lion's eating the back end. All of a sudden, you know, <laughs> and I'm like, okay, sometimes this is helpful, but sometimes not. So, you know, you can be... You can discriminate. In yes, your, try to find the nature. fun ones. They always have that one, and then they, then they show at the end because it's sponsored by an environmental, you know, uh, grant. Then they show how the plastic's killing all the birds, and so then you're sad. <sighs> but a good. I mean, there, it is true, in, in, and even in nature, that death is definitely a part of it, mm-hmm. and that's a real thing. And so, you know, there is that aspect. I just don't want to get. When you need uplifting, I don't want to be traumatized. Yeah, (laughs) just behold and enjoy and learn. Use this time to learn. 
so the next one, number six, is something I've been doing um, and looking at uh, Elizabeth Kubler Ross and Death and on Death and Dying is the book, which yep. you know <laughs> maybe one of those you know, classics I've never read. Maybe good for some and and maybe uh, not for others, but I think that what is helpful is that it starts to demystify death a little bit, mm-hmm. as well as what I think is really helpful is that she goes over the stages of, of grief and right. and she's known for sort of kind of being able to categorize it a little bit. And, the you know, so it, they, they do talk about five stages. So the and first, we can, apl- and we can apply these not just to physical death of ourselves or loved ones, oh, yes. but just kind of the death of and that's the my, way we've been doing things. And right? that, just yeah. Grieving in general. And honestly, that's my whole point yeah. is that anytime you have transition, you have grief. Right. And any kind of transitions involve some sort of, you know, and we're going through a huge transition right now mm-hmm. in life. And so all of us are susceptible to grief and it can be grieving over very different things. Right. And so, you know, not who knows, but I think that we are all grieving something on right. some form. And it's important to kind of understand that that grief does have five different stages, if you're not aware of it. Basically, the first stage in in grief, you have denial and isolation. Another stage is anger, then bargaining, then depression, and then acceptance. And the hard part about it is, is that we would love to think that grief happens on this perfect little continuum on this line. So wherever you're at, maybe in the grieving process. And, you know, so some people, again, denial, some people anger, Uh, some people bargaining, God, get me out of this and like have my family be healthy again. And I promise I'll do X, Y, or Z. Some people are just starting to get depressed or whatever. And then the people are like, okay, fine. This is our new reality. We're going for it. If we get sick, fine. You know, but we love to think of it as like almost like this process that we go through and then it's neatly in these different stages. The interesting thing about grief for anybody that has, you know, suffered like significant loss would understand this, that it, it's not this neat little continuum. In fact, it's almost like this like scrambled egg. <laughs> if you could imagine different emotions. of these different emotions yep. at different times. So you can go from denial to acceptance. You can go from, you know, depression to anger to denial <laughs> to mm-hmm. acceptance. It's not this neat, beautiful little thing that you go from point A to point B. So when you're, um, when your emotions or when you're feeling turmoil and sometimes you're feeling angry, sometimes you're accepting it, sometimes you're denying it, sometimes you're depressed, just know that these probably are some of the symptoms that you're having of grief of some kind. Yeah. And if you could Rather than trying to avoid it, if you can accept where you're at, that's really helpful. And and even asking yourself a little bit more, why am I depressed? You know, what is it that I'm depressed about? Or why am I angry right now? What am I angry about? And you really just be honest with yourself, even if you can't to other people out loud. Mm-hmm. But where? what is the source of this? Because... You might be figuring out, <laughs> and we'll go into this a little bit next week um, for our Bible study, but you might need to be figuring out maybe what you might need to let go of too. Yep. You know, um, they, they could be, you know, but not to get ahead of ourselves. The first part is just even being aware, yep. being aware one of our mood, accepting that and allowing that to be, that's what, where we're at right now. That's okay. 
when we try to stuff down some of that is sometimes where it leaks out in other ways. And so all of a sudden, if, you know, I know for me, if all of a sudden I'm being louder in the kitchen or whatever, like, it's not about cleaning the kitchen right now. It's about something else. So I really need to be honest with myself with that as we're all at home together. And there might be passive aggressive ways that we might be showing our upsetness with certain things. And maybe it really doesn't have anything to do with your loved ones right around you. It could be just your situation that you feel uh, isolated in general, or that you don't have your, you know, normal networks of people available and you're grieving that. That's okay. And it's okay to, you know, like if, to feel that way, you should feel that way. That's, that's, if it wasn't, it didn't have any meaning to us, then it wouldn't be something that we would care about, you know? So wherever you're at, whatever it is that you are feeling unsettled with or upset or, you know, whatever, it's important to acknowledge that, figure out like, what is that, that source? What does that mean to you? And then that's the best step for being able to move forward. One, if nothing else, you're going to learn not to take, take it for granted when you're out and about, you know, again, because we will get there, you know, um, it's just a matter of time. So what does that mean for our lives going forward that, you know, we should make sure that we do respect and care for, you know, what we do hold dear and what we do love and enjoy. Also, you know, what sorts of things are getting in the way of us, you know, not enjoying what we should right now, because that's where we're at right now. So we might get frustrated that we can't accomplish this one work project or whatever, but okay, well, maybe what can we accomplish though, you know, and where can you connect with your family? Some of those things, but never judge what you're feeling, even write it down, figure it out. You can look to the source. Those are all helpful clues to then getting over it. If that makes sense. It does. Yeah. Another way of saying, you know, don't worry about tomorrow. Jesus says this, live in the now. Don't be worrying about tomorrow. Don't be resentful of the past. There's something right here, right now. And one of the things you can do, in addition to making, you know, some productive use of your time, you can also love. Now, I got two more, seven and eight. Let me do them fast. Number seven, Ecclesiastes. Sometimes people are wondering, you know, what are some texts that will, will not lie to them or that will express some of the thoughts that they have. It's not the most upbeat of biblical books, but there are also some very powerful things in it. For instance, in Ecclesiastes, it's, it says that we should take joy in our relationships and in the work that we do. And so there's some, there's some positive things there. The other thing I think is important is the idea that, that you should do things in their time. So when it's time to die, then it's time to focus on that, but don't be worried about that now. Right? It's mm-hmm. right now it's time to live. Now it's time to dance. Mm-hmm. So when it's time to dance, dance. Mm-hmm. Don't be thinking about death when you're dancing. You know? Don't be resenting that you can't dance anymore when you're facing death. We right? labeled this the year of the dance. We did. This and was a, it's woo. been an interesting thing. Um uh, twenty nineteen was the year of no fear and it was terrifying. <laughs> and we have not really gone out dancing in twenty twenty. Not no, much. No. In fact we were going to for twenty twenty, we were gonna go to uh, Gina Varro's place in joshua tree and on new year's and i mean we were so excited there's gonna be a house party i was so sick though yeah. at the time like we, you know i don't know i we were almost thinking we had an early you know bout of this coronavirus who knows? i i had a hard time i had a hard time breathing i was I out i was for gonna th- die i was out for three weeks yeah. you know the first the first uh protect your noggin with jesus one that we could even film 
was still me recovering from that with a, this, you know, scratchy it, voice. It put us back quite a bit. It did. That's why we're, you know, a little bit behind on some things. And then number eight, cooking shows. Now, here's the thing. When, you know, I, I guess I'm saying I can't watch a sitcom right now. Sitcoms annoy me. I'm like, what is that? Now, if, it, if it's good for you, go watch your sitcom. I'm just saying I couldn't watch the sitcom. So what I like is the cooking show because one of the things we can do at home is learn some cooking skills and cook for each other. It's our love language right now, right? So folks will will share in or create for other people in the household something delightful. Augie and Aiden helped make this this Korean bibimbap bowl that tasted <laughs> better than a lot of things that I've I've seen at, they did at an restaurants. Awesome job. And that was like it was like a like going out to eat, but we did it right at home. So that was a lot of fun. I'm excited to put to use some stuff. I got Unfortunately, I splurged on the master classes. By splurge, I mean I forgot to cancel. <laughs> but it and then we out. kind of realized, you know what? We this is probably this. not the time to cancel. We can learn use some, some of this. things. And I know we've we've mentioned other things. So use this opportunity to to learn something so that when you that uh, brings you joy. crawl back out, yeah, <laughs> you you'll know. have some some skills, but also just something to 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 improve on uh, some aspect of your life that you've been you know neglecting. Every time we have certain challenges, it's also an opportunity. And I know that that can sound a little trite. But it's true. But it is true. And so, you know, again, I, I, I challenge you, I invite you to consider what opportunities are in your midst right now. So we're going to end this show with the song that I like to wake up to in the morning. And I hope that you will also enjoy it, perhaps, maybe. But... Right now in front of us, we do have, with all of our challenges, we do have an opportunity that we can take part in. And that opportunity, and it's not self-righteousness, it's not another law, it really is an invitation where you can help spread love and hope. I mean, that's it, it's, it can be contagious in the same way that a virus could. It can spread and if you just hold on to that hope and that love and spread that to one another, then that is how we can share a deep peace upon peace. Be bright.